Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 I'm Craig Oldham. Um, I guess technically I practice as a designer for the day job, um, but I also produce books. Um, on various subjects and this being one of them in Loving Memory Work which is on the minor strike uh, pretty personal to me Itself, the book in loving memory of work is is about the sort of is about the miners' strike in general, 1984-85. Um, there's a lot, there've been a lot of books on the miners' strike, but they all tend to be academic and they all tend to be quite balanced. You know, they sort of on this side and on that side. But this one focuses much more on the cultural outpouring of the strike, the visual and all the, all the sort of creative expressions of it that hasn't really been documented. And I'm really proud that it's incredibly biased as well, you know, towards the miners, of course. 20,000 jobs. Well, if there's 20,000 jobs, then pits have been working undermanned and there is four and a half million people on the dole. Well, that is disgusting, that. They should have had them jobs. There shouldn't be 20,000 jobs. But I don't believe there is anyway. Anyway, we're people, we're not cattle. We don't want to be moved all over where he says we've got to go. That's it, yeah. We live here. Why should he tell us? We've got to move there. All my family lives here, so they're going to move me somewhere and her somewhere. We're all split up. No, we're not having that. We're people. The book came about, really, I guess, with the strike itself. Um, In 84, both my dad and my granddad were miners, and they walked out in support of their union in March 1984 and we're out for the full duration of it, so 12 months. Um, and I'm called a strike baby because, you know, my dad was off work, he had nothing else to do, so I was, you know, conceived and born within that year. Um, yeah, and I was born a matter of days after the formal end of the strike. And so, growing up with that, and the sort of hardship my family had, I was always surrounded by all these stickers and these posters and all these little stories from family, from family friends, from neighbours, all talking about this thing called the strike. And I guess when you're a kid, you sort of think everyone has the same upbringing, you know. So I just thought everyone grew up in this kind of environment of, you know, a post-industry kind of doom and gloom. But there was all these humourful stories and, like I said, that visual material around me. But I didn't really think about it because it was just so, you know, it was my, it was just there. I just thought everyone had got it. And then, of course, as I've grown up and I've started to contextualise it by, you know, hearing other things and other people's experiences about it, I started to realise, well, yeah, for a lot of people, this was their upbringing. But for a lot of people, it wasn't. Um, Because there were hundreds of thousands of families that were involved in the strike. So there'll be hundreds of, you know, thousands of kids just like me, which is what sort of spurred me on a little bit but and my sort of life taking that as a designer and being interested in visual culture and those kinds of things has just sort of led me to sort of 
to this point of sort of thinking, well, maybe this is due a reappraisal, you know, because it's been willfully ignored in sort of the art history and, and the sort of design and art canons, I guess, for lack of a better word. Whether that's because they didn't win technically or not, I don't know. Or history always, when something doesn't quite fit with their narrative that they yeah. want to put forward, they tend to either just get rid of it or it's a little footnote. Now, the minor strike was so seminal, like socially and politically, yeah. that it can't be ignored in like historical and academic circles and yeah. political ones. So that's why I think there's a shitload of books on yeah. stuff like that. But culturally, visually, certainly, it, it doesn't really fit. With you know you, you can you know Vietnam movement and all that, there's a huge visual. There was a huge visual setup in America and it was massive and it got you know as the media was picking up in America, all those things were. It was a visual kind of war, you know the sort of and babies and babies poster and all those kinds of things. Whereas the minor strike didn't really have that. Uh, the because the media did, weren't on their side, you know, so it never really got further than the little sort of red flag left circle and you know people were obviously on their side so when it came to sort of 30 years with the anniversary of the strike um, I just thought well now you know nobody celebrates 31 I might as well get this thing done and put or pull all this visual material together and and see what people think but you know I can't deny that personal attachment I had with my family and my dad didn't really have a strong bearing on me to do it. They were nice when I was doing it, thinking no one's going to read this. You know, it's just me. I'm only interested in this. That's why it's not been done before. Uh, but of course, luckily, as I've got it out there, people will do. Like I said, those, those, all those other kids that were born at the same time as me, or or thereabouts that grew up in this, they've all really attached to it, and and you know they really identify with different bits in it, and that's been amazing, really, really rewarding. And of course, doing it with my dad. I took my dad with me everywhere to museums to meet people it was if, from my sort of selfish side of it you know it gave me a bit of validity having my dad in the room to say look because they've had journalists come to these people you know they've had journalists come and knock on the door and say no no I'm in your interest they, they give them everything and then they just turn the backs on them and write whatever they want where I you know so I was sensitive to that so I thought well having my dad in the room will just you know maybe you might just ease those concerns that I am actually doing the right thing and then, but my dad, you know, you know, he was, he was, he picketed all the time and he was arrested at Orgreave, which was one of the most seminal sort of pickets at the time. And there's campaigns around it now in that sort of a precursor to Hillsborough. Um, and he was arrested then and, and uh, you know, beaten by the police and stuff. And then to this day, you know, I think he's still, if he, if he would admit it to your face or not, I don't know, but I think he's still a bit despondent to it. He still thinks he's not going to get any justice for it. He still thinks he was... I think it's still, you know, those hard times are still there, even though he laughs about it and he makes jokes about it. And in a lot of senses, I think it was a really important year in his life. He was, I can't remember how he was exactly, but he was in his mid-twenties at the time. So he's, he was, he was, he was younger than I am now doing this book when he was in there doing it. So it was quite a big part of his growing up, his upbringing, his sort of formative adulthood years. And I think having that happen in the middle of it, I think I think he's still not got his head around it, to be honest. Stand so proud, a wheel so still, a ghost-like figure on the hill. It seems so strange, there is no sound. Now there are no men underground. What will become of this pitch yard? 
where men once trampled faces hard. So tired and weary, their shit dark. Never having seen the sun. The Hillsborough campaign, I think, and the success they've had, if you can call it that, because it's such a horrible thing, yeah. uh, you know, the vindication yeah. might be a better word. I think it's given me more hope than him, I think. I mean, I'm a campaigner for the Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign. Uh, I support them by just, you know, whatever I can. You know, I, they, they give the, I give them these books and whatever they sell, they make the money on the... Uh, and I do, I design work for them as and when I can, and I've done a banner for them and stuff. So I support them as and when they need me. I actually designed the legal uh, legal submission to Parliament for them, which is hopefully going to get them. I mean, they've got a meeting in September with the MP and Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary. So, and I think that, that sort of tidal wave that's happened since Hillsborough, I'm hoping, I'm more optimistic that that's going to push them over the line and get their inquiry to what they need. Um, I think my dad's still as in that not in my lifetime kind of mentality I don't know why maybe he's just again maybe he's just had it had enough you know promises promises kind of thing yeah. and had it I don't know but I think that's how he feels about it I feel you know I, I want it to happen for for my dad for all those other dads that were there yeah. for all those other uncles and granddads to you know because it was it was such a such a hard time for a lot of people when when it came to pulling this thing together. Initially it was just, right, I, I agreed with myself, right, I, I need to do something on this. Like I said, no one celebrates 31 years of anything, it's, it's 30, now or, you know, it's now or never. I didn't, I, you know, I, I knew there were certain things that I'd seen that I remembered, such as that horrific image of Leslie Bolton about to be hit by a policeman by John Harris, um, which was on the front of Labour Weekly, I think, initially, yeah. uh, their sort of newspaper. And I think only one national newspaper even had it in there somewhere. Out of I think there were 15 at the time, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but um, so I knew I had some sort of staple markers in the sand of right. I need to get hold of that and that and that. But other than that, I only had a year from start to finish to do this thing. To from right, I'm going to do something. To I'm at the printers. Um, so it was thick and fast. It was in between my you know day job as well and doing things in my own studio. Uh, to pay the bills and for this, <laughs> but um, so it was a lot of running around, and that was where my dad helped as well, and my family. You know, it was right. Who do you know, Dad? You know, I sat down with him at a pint, and I was like, right, anyone, your mates who you see at the pub or that you knew or that you bump into in town or whatever, just ask them if they've got anything or if they know anyone who's got anything. Nothing is irrelevant. Just get it all to me. And so I just fast and furiously just went to all these places, went to these museums. The Working Class Movement Library in Salford, funnily enough, had an amazing collection of stuff. You know, they get people turning up saying, Grandad's died, great granddad's died. They had all this stuff, would you like it? And so they have bags and bags of stuff. And some of it is, is you know, useful, some of it is relevant, some of it they just sort of keep to one side. And I got in touch with them and I went to see them and they just got everything out they had. They were like, look, none of this is any order. We haven't had time to catalogue it yet. They run on volunteers. And they just had loads of it, loads of posters, loads of, you know, gig posters and all sorts of people that people had just made marker pen out of and stuck cold knot door stickers on and stuff like that. They had so much. 
So that really helped us and got us down there. They also had a big collection of vinyl and cassettes and stuff. A lot of it was people, you know, recording a cassette tape on their own and just sort of, you know, photocopying the inside and cutting the slip out and just selling them as and when they could to get a bit of money, you know. And I didn't really have a chance that much to listen to most of them, but, and that, that, so it was just a sort of, initially, let's amass as much as I can. And then it just became, when I started going, okay, this is a bit, this is this poster here or this this album here was, seems quite seminal. It's cropped up a few times. Let's target that a bit more, or this part time or whatever. And then I, and then I started to notice that I'd be put, you know, I'd be pulling things out. Oh, that's about Orgreave. Put that in that one pile. Oh, that's about uh, the, the you know the women against pit closures and that kind of movement. That's that's someone else trying to raise money for the miners, but that isn't a miner. You know, sort of lesbians and gays support the miners and those kinds of solidarity movements. So I was like, right, they need to go in that pile. They're kind of similar. And then I started, it started to emerge that I had these sort of four main piles. And then there was one that was all stuff like after the strike. And that's really how the sort of skeleton of the book appeared, just through furiously pulling anything. Give me all you got, give me all you got. You know? And just pulling it all together. And, and people were so generous, they gave me stuff or I bought stuff or, you know, found stuff in charity shops. It was just... Any spare minute I had, I'd just be poking around somewhere, you know, having a look. And then, when once that sort of defined itself, it was just about researching and talking to people and writing it, really, and pulling it together and designing it in a way that it felt like it, it deserved to be done. You know, this stuff. I guess I was always conscious in the back of my mind that, I, that like I said before, when I was knocking on doors with my dad that they'd, 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 they'd probably heard a lot of this similar story, oh, I'm doing a book on the strike, would you help me? Um, so I was really worried that I didn't let them down. So it felt like it had to be designed in a way and communicated in a way and put forward as an object that, that feels like it came from their world for them. And that was, that was what led the whole sort of aesthetic of it as well. Because they're, you look at these things and like I said, they're just half the time the, the, the sort of the raw power, the sort of crude creativity of them is what makes them so interesting. Because it is the sort of, the, you can imagine these people suffering this hardship, getting told on television and through the media and the newspapers and the BBC, they're all saying, oh, the mining communities are, you know, the this and the that, and they were all lies. And you could, you could, you can imagine these frustrations boiling over to the point where they were just like, right, give me that bed sheet and that can of spray paint, I'm gonna have my say. And that's what they did, and that was their banner, or they made a poster, or they photocopied. In a really like post-punk kind of Britain, they were making stuff themselves. It, with the Yeah, the aesthetic they had to hand, zine kind of, all that kind of stuff. And that's that's the aesthetic. So you look at one of them on their own, that some, some bloke from Durham's done it on his kitchen table, and you might go, yeah, okay, it is what it is. Put a thousand of them together, and suddenly it becomes something else. And that's the power of it and you've not really seen anything that has a sort of collectivism like that until maybe things like Occupy happened, which was, what, 20, 30 years later. And that's the thing that's important to me, that it was a collective solidarity, but a visual one as well. And it was creative, you know, they did poems. It wasn't just posters and placards and banners, you know, they wrote poems, they wrote songs. As I said, they performed them, they gave talks. These Just these ordinary sort of people that you and me would know, or our mums and dads, you know, that just did the shift, came home, you know, and cleaned the house or played with the kids or walked the dog or whatever, and then step and repeat, step and repeat. They were, they were getting up in front of hundreds of thousands of people and saying, will you support us? You know, they were going to communities they'd never been to. 
you know, my dad came to London, he'd never been before in his life. And he found himself here on a massive rally and stuff like that. My mum was part of the women's movements and why she could, because she was pregnant, but she still went to pickets and she still marched and stuff. So it changed people's lives. Yeah. And for that not to have a sort of representation somewhere, I thought was something that did need addressing. Well, I, th I think like creativity for me is, 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 I think, first of all, I think everyone has it. I don't think it's something that only artists have or musicians or designers or whatever you are. I think everyone has it, an innate creative ability. You know, we can't all run 100 metres like you say in bolt camp, but we can all run 100 metres. And I think it's a little bit like that. Some of us choose to massage it and that muscle and make it better and stronger. But I think everyone has it. And I think what why we all have it is because it's a means to sort of understand what we're doing and our own experiences and give ourselves a sort of it's another way for us to get his head around things and I think that's why when particularly hardship or struggle or things that people really believe in that affect their lives they do tend to have this sort of eruption of creative kind of output whatever it is whatever form it takes is, is, is what it is but that's why when you see protests and stuff it's that's when it all comes because people have got something to say and they're going to say it as I sort of talked about what, you know, as I was growing up thinking, oh, this is just me, and but it wasn't. It was loads of people. It was the the there was there was a similar sort of echo with people who were in sort of I guess who were in more not celebrities, but you know in, in more and I don't want to say privileged positions either, but they were in they were in the you know the public eye, and of course the miners got support in some of those places, and of course they didn't get support in some of those places, but the people that were supportive of them tried to help in whatever way they can and. You know the the sort of musicians and and that industry, the music industry. They helped by you know doing their own releases of records. You know they would they would record an album with a bunch of their mates and they'd try and get it out on their own you know label, a limited press or whatever, just to sort of get some funds up for the you know the strike fund. Or they'd do benefit gigs where you know they they'd rock up in places, do a gig, charge on the door, and then you know the 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 classic methods of sort of fundraising, although they weren't technically classic back then but um so you, you know people did that and and comedians did the same they do gigs and give them money alexis sale for example who is you know if there is a comedian who is red flag you know it's, it's alexis sale with his you know his communist parents and stuff like that you know but it was really interesting with alexis because alexis went and did a tour around all these mining villages and he popped up in places like armthorpe and in barnsley and you know all these other sort of weird little mining towns that you might never have gone to just to the benefit gigs to raise some money. And of course, I'd, 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 I'd seen pictures of where photographers had been there and they'd captured him doing these things. And that's it. I knew that Ken Loach had made a film on the miners' strike because he sort of saw it as it was happening. He, he said, look, this is a, a seminal moment in our political and social landscape. We need to capture this. And I think Channel 4 commissioned him to do a film on it and then they didn't show it for, I can only say, political reasons. That's just my opinion. but. So there were all these things going on in the public eye, whether it was music or art or, or film or you know comedy. And in my research, I came across these things and I decided, well, this is a bigger thing. Let's just see if we can get these people to talk about why they did it or you know, if they had any connection to it directly. Whatever it was, let's just hear about it. Um, I obviously knew Ken Loach's politics kind of aligned with it. And I loved this film. It was such an inspiration that I... Uh, I just got in touch with his with, with uh, 16 films, um, 
and with his PA through a friend of mine who had had him lecture, I think in Preston, about his film um, a few years ago. And it was just, it was literally, I wrote this sort of really groveling, wordy email and sort of covered my eyes and pressed send and think, well, that'll be that. I'll not, I'll not get anything back, you know, but lo and behold, you know, they got back in touch and just said, Ken's, he'd be, he'd be really pleased to do this. He'll write you a piece for it. And I was like, that'd be great. Does he want to write a foreword? And that, that's what I got. And with the Lexi sale, it was a little bit similar. Fired an email out into the ether thinking I'll not get anything back, but there it was. And we ended up Skyping him while he was in his villa in Spain. We recorded the interview, of yeah. course, on the phone, but and then we, we sort of just, uh, with, t together with Alexi, we sort of wrote a piece and he, he added his bits and we sort of together brought this interview to life. Um, and uh, similar with Jeremy Della, I wanted to do a, a little bit at the beginning uh, to sort of tee up that kind of, this is what the book is, it's a cultural thing, a cultural artifact. Um, and I knew that Jeremy Dello had done the Battle of Orgreave in, I think it was 2001, which where he reenacted the, uh, the the events at Orgreave using actors and sort of, uh, not LARPers, but those, you know, those kinds of people that do the, the reenactments uh, and did that as an art piece. Um, and I just got in touch with him and said, I'm doing this, can I ask you a few questions about art, politics, about the Battle of Orgreave, about the minor strike, where were you, what were you doing? And he was just very, very generous and very happy to be involved. And he's been very supportive of it. And I did that with a lot of designers that were around at that time. Uh, you know, Jonathan Barnbrook, who is a designer who does a lot, who did a lot of the Occupy stuff. Who Ian were, Anderson, yeah, Ian Anderson from Designers Republic, who, who was very involved in music. Um, did a lot of record stuff, but he was around, he was picketing and stuff like that as a student in Sheffield at the time, which was, you know, which was right in the middle of it all in central Yorkshire. So all these people sort of, they all, even though they were really different, uh, just sort of came together to make the book. And I kind of like that that echoed the sort of solidarity of everyone at the time to sort of, you know, people from all these weird different backgrounds came together because they'd all sort of suffered a what they felt was an oppressive force, you know, at the hands of, you know, Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government at the time. And it worked, you know, that's what they did. They got together and they did and they gave it the best shot. Like I said, I was doing this on my own and trying to pull it together in, in you know, in the small hours kind of thing as and when I could. So so when, because you're thinking, you spiral, you're thinking, oh yeah, nobody's going to read this, nobody's going to buy it, I'm, you know, I'm going to lose all my money. And <laughs> have to go live with my mums, you know, all that. It runs through your head, and then you get an email from someone and they want to help, and you just think, oh, and it gives you it gives you the you know wind in your sails that you need at that time. So, very grateful to them still, and it's just amazing that they helped out really. Your privatise away, and 
then you make us pay. I will take it back someday. Mark my words, mark my words. We'll take it back someday. There was a, a massive amount of musical sort of um, output, I guess, during the strike. I, th I think music is such an important thing in all kind of struggles, in all kind of protest movements. Um, some more than others. I mean, you know, you, the, the, for example, Vietnam and music, you know, the, 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 the overlap's massive. Um, so, and I think the minor strike was similar to that, but it was a very British kind of response. It, you know, they were, they were, they were sort of records released by labels, and you know, you guys, Rough Trade, released one, of course. And but they they were very of their time, and they were great, and they and you know they were they were quick, they were dirty, and they were good, and, and that's what they were. Um, and you know, and some you know in 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 the in the kind of decade that was would you know would inevitably dominated by Band Aid. You know, it was that on a sort of smaller, smaller scale. It's, it's certainly, you know, certainly not really that international. I mean, Paul Weller got together his what were they, Style Council or whatever, yeah. got and they did releases and stuff like that. But the thing that I loved the most about it was the people again, like the book, were the people that um, that just wrote music themselves, you know, and tried and performed that live in front of people that they live next door to. You know, they got up and, and they, they, they rehearsed these poems. There was a, there's a particular song. It's, is it a song or is it a performance? I'm not sure. It's a, but it's a, it's, a, it's a play on The Laughing Policeman by a guy called Mike Elliott, who was uh, sadly no longer with us, but he was, he was from Durham. Uh, and he, it was a skit on The Laughing Policeman, and he, he wrote about that sort of demise of the, the, you know, the trust that people had with policemen now, all based on that iconic song of the the policeman laughing jolly down the street and it's so good it's on Ken Loach's film and it was on it was included in a few of the releases um, at the time just where which side are you on it was on there that which is the name of the Ken Loach one as well I think it might even be on Billy Bragg's heroes as well and that is just so brilliant because for me it just sums up everything you know there's it's it's on one level it's a creative response from someone who is just a minor you know, I say just a minor. That's you know the entire point. But you know, but he had the courage to stand up in front of all his his, his friends, his family, his peers, and say that you know, in in a, in a completely patriarchal community, you know, old British community, the way it was all you know, joking and elbows and woo, you know, but he did it, and and it's so good, it's so creative, it's so funny, and I think that's the thing. You've got to have humour, you know. It's so creative, it's so funny, and I think that's the thing. You've got to have humour, you know. And I, and despite all the shit that was thrown at them and all the hardship they had to suffer, they could still laugh. They could still be self-deprecating. They could still deal with it. And I think that when you've got humour involved in these things, that's when people who might be on the fence you know, should should I support them, should I not? That's when you win them over because you show they can empathise with humour. And when that's present, and music's such an emotional kind of, you know, it's such an abstract and emotional art form, that if there's humour in there as well, I think people can just identify with it and it can live beyond that struggle itself. I PC one one five oh and I'm here on picket duty. A kicking and a cushion for five hundred pounds of booty. A striker took my number when I belted him good and proper. You think he would have learned by now? 
special kind of copper. Oh, billets on PC 1150. Tomorrow I'll be 1501 or maybe 5110. Why does my number change so much? I bet you'll never guess. It's all protection calling for the boys in the SAS. So that I just love that, and of course they they made these records themselves, and there was a the, the Women Against Pit Closures movement. They used to sing anthems and you know, political songs from Greenham Common made the way into the the women's movement, and all of that stuff is really good. And they were much more enterprising than the blokes were. You know, they they were the ones that were printing stuff and binding it and selling their song sheets. They were the ones that were they were publishing books, getting them out there. You know. And, and they, they, they were the ones that were making the records. There's a, there's a great one in the book um, called Amnesty, which was actually released after the strike, just. Um, but the, the entire sleeve of it is just all handwritten, all hand-drawn, and you can tell that they've just sort of handed their artwork over to the printer and just gone, just just print as that, and it's, all, it's stapled in there, you know, the, the inside sleeve, the record protective sleeve, just stapled in there. And I just love that, you know. Yeah. Like I say, it's a kind of, a, like in a post-prunk, Britain, that it was, st- it was still there, and it was still the sort of the creativity of choice to just get it out there, you know, to rebel, and I love that. The, these these pop up gigs were were they were on they were on the hoof. A lot of the times they were just like organised that week, so a lot of the stuff didn't really last. You know, the the the, the clash one that they did at uh, Brixton there, you know, it was like I think it was like the second ever gig they'd ever had there, yeah. and they had all these burly Yorkshiremen rocking up thinking they're going to wreck the place and it was the clash as well and there's a lot of that you know i remember seeing the the a new order one as well and i saw the the stubs and the little bits the leaflets and the flyers but they, they looked like new order had, had them done do you know what i mean so they didn't really fit the kind of narrative but i mean they mentioned in the in the in the text of course but visually that was what i'm going for but it was the more important thing was that all these all these bands and all these people all these artists were just like yeah you know, let's let's stand side by side with these these workers. You know, the working class, because a lot of them come from those places. You know, they come from all those little towns, and that's how they you know the roots of their creativity and their bands and and whatever else. And I think they identify with it. It's massively important to me. You know, working class people, working class kids. Um, you know, it's especially I cannot. You know, from my my background being in the creative industries in terms of design and, and that kind of stuff and, and, and you know and having friends who are involved in fashion who are you know have bands and they're involved in music and, and artists as well it's such a middle class you know it's such a middle class industry it's it's run by middle class upper middle class people it's still classically to its eternal shame you know the the you know, the playground of the rich white man, you know. And it's just, I think it's a shame that, I think it's shocking that only so many people can break through that and make it into that, you know, and and they can do that. So I think it's important that when, if you do do that and you get there, that you still, you find a way to either say, look, I'm still a working class lad, or or lass, or whatever it is, or, you know, you, you, you don't deny where you came from and you show other people how you how you did it and give that back you know and say this is how you work through because there's so many of them you know so many of us I identify with them and that diversity is such a good thing all those different backgrounds that's what will will make it more interesting otherwise we're just going to breed a monoculture of shit you know 
you, the, everything's going to sound the same, everything's going to look the same. Whether you agree with it or not, it's still important to have another idea in there, to have a different idea, to have someone who doesn't come from your background. So, but that's why I'm so proud of the women's movement within it, because, like I said, there were these patriarchal communities where, you know, the bloke did his 12-hour shift, came home, wanted his, wanted his dinner on the table, you know, and the wife's role was to stay at home, get the kids off to school, then clean the house, get the kids back from school, then prepare the meal, and then in, in come the dad. And, and suddenly they were out of work, so that structure, it didn't operate anymore, and the women were just incredible, you know, they took that and it changed, you know, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of, you know, my, my parents' relationship broke down as a result of that because my mum was just like, well, I'm not going back to that. I've, you know, she'd seen, she'd seen behind the curtain, been to the puppet show and seen the strings. <laughs> she wasn't having it anymore. And she, she, it liberated so many women. And then suddenly we have such a, an interesting, different point of view in the world, again, where people are prepared, allowed, I guess, to say, if that's the right word, but also want to go out there and express themselves. So. I think it's massively important to me that that is allowed to happen and doesn't just get swept under the rug like a lot of this stuff on the miners' strike could have done. I think we can learn a lot from what happened in the miners' strike. I, I do genuinely believe it was the most important political and social thing that's happened since 1945, you know. Um, so you're talking 30 years since it happened. Uh, it was, it was, there's ultimately a lot we can learn there from the way that the media were involved in that and in terms of manipulating things, the, you know, the, the role of the police in communities, but also the creativity and the way that we can respond to these things, the way that you can, if, you, if, you, if you're prepared to get together with people who share differences with you, you can be stronger, you know, that kind of solidarity. I think that's more relevant now than it ever has been. Because weirdly, you know, with, with we're in a place now where we are echoing a lot of 80s politics, you know. I'm, I'm not just, it's not an eye for an eye, I'm not saying Theresa May is the next Margaret Thatcher, but there are echoes there, you know. The, the Labour Party's on its arse, you know, there's a lot of infighting. You know, we're, we're, we're at a place where the financial boom is, is no more, you know, the banks and all that, and you know, in the 80s, after the strike, it was all, you know, I'm a banker, loads of money, and that's that was the start of all of that, that has now come back down. There are, there are a lot of parallels, and I think what we can learn from that instead of, and I'm not saying all kids are apathetic because they're not, but what I'm saying is that we can learn by the activism displayed in this book where people, instead of not, I'm not saying, Get, get off your ass! but instead of sitting around thinking, oh, I should, somebody should do something, they didn't rely on other people to do it, they just sort of went and said, no, I have something to do, I have something to say, I've got an opinion on this, and I'm going to get it out there. And, and now whether that's going to be social media or whatever, I don't know, but there's still something to, to be said about solidarity and joining together and letting those in power know that you got them there and you elected them, so now you can change it. Um, and it'd be, you know, vice versa. I think it'd be very interesting to know what would have been an outcome of this of the strike if they had mobile phones. You know, they, the police had radios. They could, they could, they knew and communicated very quickly. The pickets, they met in a pub on the corner of the motorway because they'd been told to go there. The phone would ring, and then they'd be told where to head. Now, if you four hours away from where you're supposed to head, the police would probably get get wind of it two hours in and meet you there. So, I think there's definitely things we can learn from that. The, the fact that we, you know, you shouldn't ever sort of give up on your beliefs and the fact that you, the other way around, you should stand up even more firmer for them and together um, is something that you can definitely do. And 
and embrace your creativity you know embrace that and use it as a another tool to get at people the amount of time when you see something that's shared around the world is, is because it's generally a creative response to something all the stuff that's happening now with Donald Trump and the people are responding to that creatively they're being witty about it they're writing things that they're, they're making memes and websites and all sorts of stuff and it, it's it's a similar thing but you need more of it like there was then you know more physical things I think Rough Trade Radio. 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 Rough Trade Radio.